Hello and welcome to Altamar. I'm Peter Schechter. And I'm Mooney Jensen, here to navigate the high seas of global politics, as we do twice a month. The Summit of the Americas just ended in Los Angeles a few weeks ago, and the Americas seem further apart than ever. From Mexico to Chile, there's turmoil, discontent, economic headwinds and social unrest, shaky politicians, crazy electoral results. So we will be joined today by Luis Alberto Moreno, former ambassador and Inter-American Development Bank president, a true expert on the region who is incredibly a lot more optimistic than we are. Muni, I spent so much of my life in Latin America, working, living, advising, campaigning, trying to make sense of this wonderful and often incredibly frustrating region. I've seen a lot. I've gone from military rule to recessions and violence, attempts at integrations, huge economic steps forward, incredible optimism, election fraud. I've, I've seen a lot. I've never seen such vulnerability and such disagreements as what's going on today. And it's not only between the U.S. and the rest of the region. Disarray, discord, and estrangement are everywhere. And we see it in Mexico with a surprisingly resiliently popular president that has wreaked havoc on the business community and can't get a hold on the security issues in Central America, hit hard by COVID and natural disasters and inequality, governed by millennial autocrats like Nayib Bukele in El Salvador, who's wildly popular, and old school dictators like Ortega in in Nicaragua and everything in between, and Venezuela spirals out of control, Peru has incompetent leadership, and Colombia, Colombia, which always seemed to be the grown-up in the room, has now devolved into madness with this crazy election among two populist leaders, which we're going to talk a lot more about in our next episodes. I won't say more about it. Yeah, I'm... I'm going to resist going to talk about Colombia right now. But as we go down the map, Peter, things are not looking better. Ecuador is hanging to the center by a hair. And Brazil, my goodness, Brazil, back to the future, running again in an election in which Lula seems to be on the verge of beating incumbent rightist Jair Bolsonaro. Like There was no generational shift there. Chile's Boric, for some, a breath of fresh air on the left, is already in trouble. And it's really hard to find a bright spot, in my view. Maybe I'm being too pessimistic, but let's turn to Thea, who has a more lively view of Latin America's social progress. Hi, I'm Thea Ivanovich, and this is Thea's Take, where we take a look at youth and social justice issues. So, Peter Mooney, there's no doubt that there are lots of reasons to be very concerned about Latin America. I mean, inflation is rampant, youth unemployment is in deep double digits, poverty rates are growing, climate change is a huge factor across the region, and its worst effects haven't even been seen yet. And yet, I did find one positive reason to talk about today, and that's basic women's rights. As the U.S. is grappling with more restrictions on abortions and Americans brace for the possibility that the Supreme Court will soon overturn the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision that legalizes the procedure, several Latin American countries have moved in the opposite direction. 
protests started in Argentina in 2018 when activists were wearing green scarves, which is the color of the pro-choice movement in Latin America. And they took to the streets of Buenos Aires and other cities to pressure lawmakers into legalizing abortion. In 2020, Argentina's Congress voted to legalize abortion in the first 14 weeks. Last year, Mexico's Supreme Court ruled that criminal penalties for abortion are unconstitutional. And this February, Colombia's Constitutional Court legalized abortion during the first 24 weeks of pregnancy. The latest to take up the issue is Chile. There, a new constitution will legalize abortion rights later this year. I mean, it's not everywhere, and there are still countries in Latin America where the procedure remains illegal, but the fact that some of the continent's most populous countries are moving forward will likely serve as a really big example for others to follow. And although abortion is available on demand in Cuba, Guyana, and Uruguay, the procedure remains illegal in El Salvador, Honduras, and Nicaragua, even in cases of rape or incest, which is the direction the U.S. seems to be going in. But can you believe that soon we may see women from Texas and other states along the U.S.-Mexico border traveling to Mexico to have a legal abortion rather than the other way around? I mean, it's hard to wrap my mind around that. And it's really yet another way that Latin America is ahead of much of the world when it comes to social rights. It's really quite impressive. Several Latin American countries legalized same-sex marriage ahead of the United States, including Argentina, in 2010, five years before the U.S. Supreme Court. Argentina also enacted the world's most progressive gender identity law in 2011, which allows anyone to change the gender assigned at birth without undergoing surgery or a diagnosis of gender dysphoria. So in 2013, Uruguay became the first country in the world to legalize marijuana, and Colombia legalized euthanasia in 2014, ahead of much of the world. And most striking of all, perhaps, is as recently as 2015, women presidents led South America's three leading economies, those of Brazil, Argentina, and Chile. So yes, even though there are many reasons to be very concerned about the region, some Latin American countries are trying to move forward on these social issues, and that should be recognized too. Let us know your thoughts on all of this by tweeting at Altamar Podcast. Taya, thank you for reminding us of some of the positive social advances, but they also serve to outline the distance, the incredible distance between the region and the United States today. The summit of the America, unfortunately timed and feeling so improvised, was held almost reluctantly in Los Angeles in mid-June, only served to underscore the fractures in the continent. Instead of it being an opportunity for a U.S. reset of relations with Latin America, it became a source of controversy about the guest list. Nobody thought the U.S. would invite Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela, but the decision created outrage on the left and boycotts that undermined the agenda, including the boycott of the president of Mexico and almost all of the important Central American countries to whom the U.S. gives a ton of money to, it also highlighted the lack of a coherent U.S. policy in the region when there are so many transnational issues on the table from migration to climate change to inequality to corruption and organized crime. There's lots to talk about, but it just didn't seem like anything got through. Don't even get me started on the sum of the Americas. I, that was just an unfortunate chapter. 
So, Peter, we do need a bit of positive energy. So it's a great time to bring in our guest, our friend and my former boss, Luis Alberto Moreno, who has dedicated a big part of his life to Latin American socioeconomic issues as Colombian Minister of Development, as ambassador to Washington and president of the Inter-American Development Bank. He's been on the forefront of the region's most pressing issues, including economic recovery, climate change, technology, gender equality, and much more, and has received many awards for journalism and leadership, is a member of the World Economic Forum and the board of the International Olympic Committee. But more importantly, and more recently, he's launched his book, Vamos, highlighting the ways in which Latin America can attain wealth, justice, and integration. So this comes as a really good time. Luis Alberto, to me, always Ambassador Moreno, welcome to Altamar. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you, Moni, and thank you for having me, and great to talk to you and Peter and all your colleagues. So we have spent a good amount of time on this podcast underlining the multiple crises the region is experiencing in every front, political, economic, social. You just wrote a book that puts all of this into perspective and allows for a bit of hope. Let's hear from you what the recipe is to turn around the region. Look, I, I always believe that the most important recipe always is to take stock of where we were and when we are and where we could be. And if you do that, You know, if you just go back in the past 20 years, there's tremendous advances that took place in Latin America in terms of reduction of, of debt on the one hand. It used to be the big, you know, elephant in the room. Uh, it's come back up as a result, of course, of COVID. But certainly Latin American economies began to have, you know, better fiscal balances, better management of their macroeconomic circumstances. And with that came huge advances on the social area and numbers of people who not only went to school, but finished high school and into university. There's, of course, huge number of things that must be done in terms of quality of education. In terms of access to healthcare, there were tremendous advances as well. So, and you know, in, in the makeup and a more sophisticated kind of business makeup and, and, you know, what happens today, for instance, in the whole startup community in the innovation economy. So there were many things that happened over the last 20, 30 years. Certainly, you know, there's, as always, bumps on the road and, and without a question, we're in a very complex moment. The, you know, Latin America suffered, in my view, kind of a combination of shocks, the first of which came with the global financial crisis. We were able to get out of it very quickly and it got Latin America in a good moment where, where there were fiscal balances, there were low debt to GDP ratios, so that allowed Latin American economies to bounce back. But then, you know, subsequent to that, the financial crisis created a lot of problems that lasted for a long time in many areas of the economy. And that brought to Latin America perhaps some of the lowest levels of growth in the last 40 years. That took place, I would say, in the last seven or eight years. And then came COVID and then now the war. So all that compounding of shocks is the moment in which we're in. But notwithstanding, still Latin America looking towards the future has an opportunity because we're, we're writing the new chapter of what this new world order is going to look like. And in that new chapter, there's going to be more regionalization, less globalization. There's going to be, you know, kind of this peace dividend that we have for 30 years that is over, essentially, that essentially allowed, you know, the global economy to grow significantly. It's not going to disappear, but I think it's going to be more regional. And we're basically large producers of commodities, always have been, 
and commodities are going to be on the rise for some time. So that gives us some running room, but it's going to require very savvy economic and political management to continue to do the structural reforms that are needed and to basically be able to get on the bandwagon of these no regional supply chains, become more resilient than we have been in the past. So that is, I think, the, the, the next question. You've mentioned some shining shining stars in business and in some social development, but really where the failure is starting to happen is in the politics. And it's hard to find these shining stars in within government or candidates in Latin America. Is there any leadership style or a leader that you feel is on the right track to, you know, to go through those structural reforms that are so necessary for this next step? Look, I think the first thing that we have to recognize is that the way politics is done most everywhere is more and more around identity politics, and therefore it is all about what divides you and not how you find common ground. And that has led, you know, I think one of the 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 wrongs of social media has been how tribal conversations become everywhere. And the more tribal things happen, the least people-to-people communication takes place, and especially that happens, you know, in the space of the the congressional dynamics in any country and how that is equally driving a lot of, you know, the media attention and all that. So we are in a moment where building around consensus is very, very difficult, and that's what makes the art of governing so much more difficult. And definitely it invites people who can let's say, use that political cleavage that exists today to get elected to do more division as opposed to more unity. And that's the reality, unfortunately, in the world today. Having said that, that reality for the citizens of most countries in the world, and especially in Latin America, where, as you know, we're not short of passion, uh, Sometimes we put more passion than, than rationality on, on, on our analysis of issues. But despite that, every day, every family wakes up trying to do the best they can for their family, for their kids, for their communities. And so there is like increasingly a, a divide between the public discourse and the people's discourse. And it is only around very specific issues that hurt that people of a sudden decide to throw the baby with the bathwater, which is kind of the sense that one gets in many of these elections that are very hard to read. Can I just follow up on that? I, I, I mean, I, I complete, I love this that notion of the, there's a disparity between everybody trying to do good for their children and feed their families and things like that and the public discourse. But yet the voters are voting for the craziest bunch of people because they're also, while they're trying to do good for their kids, they also seem really angry. And Peter, I think like everything in life, when you're angry, it's not exactly when you make the best decisions in whatever situation in life you're in. And if the reason for voting is to punish somebody because you're angry at something, then you're not rationalizing your decision, but rather you're exacerbating it. And unfortunately, that's where we're at today. 
Let me move to the Summit of the Americas just uh, held in, in June. And, you know, it could have been an opportunity to convene regional leaders with the United States to yield a roadmap for recovery and prosperity. Instead, the lead up of the event became just a bunch of bickering, improvised and disappointing about who was coming and who was not. The takeaways from the summit, I mean, I mean, people I know who are not Latin Americans don't even know the summit happened because I guess a lot of people wanted to bury the news. So what's what do you think are the takeaways from this summit? And, and how, how do we make these summits more useful than this one was? Well, look, I mean, first of all, it's hard to do any one of these summits because there is such a disparity of interest. But having said that, you know, there were other summits where at least you got, especially, you know, in Miami, in Panama, where it was the first time that uh, all countries were there, including Cuba. And then, you know, kind of this slippery slope in, in which we somehow went backwards. But look, as everything, summits are as good as their preparation. And that preparation required, in my view, a process of having a lot of people listening very carefully to these dynamics that are changing in the region. It also happened with a background in which what seems to matter in the United States, at least on the big, big policy issues, foreign policy issues, are both the war in Ukraine and China. Those are the two big things that the United States is concentrating on. And it requires a lot of attention of the more senior people in the administration. When that happens, then it's not the senior leadership who's focusing. It is more, you know, the rest of the teams. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, the president of the United States can convene. is a great convener, but he has to plan to see exactly what they want to do and, and how to basically put out there some bold ideas. I mean, if you recall, the first summit of the Americas was with a very big, bold idea. And it was the countries in Latin America that did not seize on that opportunity. It was President Clinton saying, let's create in this hemisphere a free trade area of the Americas. Mind you, there were issues here and there, but that was a big idea. And it was a big idea that it was essentially the governments of Latin America for protectionist reasons and for local reasons that it never materialized. And unfortunately, it also coincided with a change but I remember the very first summit that I went was precisely in Argentina when President Bush went there and he was really, really with a desire to do something big. And this was, as you recall, before 9-11. And he really wanted to go all the way. And he was welcomed by Chavez and Maradona and Kirchner saying, there's no way that we do a free trade of the Americas. And kind of the story became not what you wanted to do, but what you did not want to do. And of course, then there was never any much bigger ideas coming out of this. But I think the big idea here could have been, there is this new world emerging. Where is the place for the Americas in that new world? And I think there's a lot to be said of how it makes a lot of sense. You know, if you're in any major corporation, and you're sourcing today from China or Asia, you're looking for how do you change those value chains? How do they become more resilient? Where can they go? How can Latin American countries trade more amongst themselves? 
how can you align interests better? And unfortunately, that takes a lot of work. And, you know, maybe in the, it's best to start with smaller meetings, eventually leading up to a bigger meeting. But again, it's, it's a lot of diplomatic work. And unfortunately, I don't know that they was there. You mentioned China, so I just wanted to ask you about China. I mean, there's a clear Latin America has become a proxy war area for China and the U.S. And, you know, to a large extent, there's this back and forth about who's winning. But some people say that China's winning as they become the largest creditor and the main trading partner for many. I'm not sure that that is necessarily a negative thing that it's doing that. As you said, the United States doesn't have a particularly great idea and also has all types of problems with infrastructure investments. What do you think about what's happening in Latin America with China? Look, I think what essentially is happening in Latin America, we have to see it from the perspective of China became a big source of diversifying Latin American trade with the rest of the world. Not unlike what happened with the U.S. or any other part of the world. But what's interesting is China's trade with Latin America is basically, the bulk of it is in five commodities. It is around some food commodities, it is around oil, it's around mineral commodities. And, you know, largely that's where it is. There's really not been much diversification over the last 20 years, but there's been a huge increase in that trade. And that trade essentially at times when you have high commodity prices has become wind to the sails of many of the South American economies, especially. So, so thinking about this in a, uh, in a proxy of war of sorts, no, uh, definitely there are other areas where Chinese investment can be a challenge and certainly are things that countries have to look very carefully what they're buying into. And, and I think that's a very valid point. And, you know, you know, why should you have a satellite in Argentina uh, financed uh, by China and what, for what purposes? I mean, there are security issues. But at the end of the day, what I find in most countries in Latin America is that you want to have political alignment with the United States, if possible, and you want to have diverse economic relationships that allow you to basically grow your economies through trade because they are still very small economies and they can only grow as economies through more trade, not with less trade. So I want to switch it up a bit. You know, I, I talked in my little segment about in the last four years, we've seen huge strides towards women's rights all across Latin America. And since 2020, Argentina, Mexico and Colombia have legalized abortion. But also when it comes to other things like gender identity and legalizing marijuana or euthanasia and in a region that's often viewed by those that don't know it as kind of conservative and religious. Can you paint the picture for us of why this is happening and how this is happening? Well, I think there's a number of reasons. First of all, there's a very fast process of urbanization. You know, Latin America, if you go back 20, 30 years ago, was about 50, 45% urban to rural. Today, that number is close to 80%. So more people are living in cities. City dynamics change a lot of people's behaviors. But more importantly, it is basically, in a way, Latin America was behind the times in many of these issues that around the world have become, you know, more of the traditional social norms. And so, you know, what I think is interesting in your question is how quickly this happened. You know, if you take many of those debates 
in developed countries took many, many years. In Latin America, it was much faster. And it happened, yes, even though we're very much a Roman Catholic kind of, of region, even with big discussions with the church, these, these things advanced. And I have to celebrate what's happened with women empowerment, even though I also, as much as I caution that, because yes, there's a lot of women empowerment, especially in politics and in government participation, but I don't know what, but behind closed doors, there's still a lot of uh, violence uh, against women. And still in the private sector, there's huge differences in terms of what women earn in the same position that a man would. And equally, in running big companies and or being represented in boards, those things are still lagging. Some countries are advancing faster than others. That's very true. And that issue, women's issues, uh, as, as well as others, many themes that cut across countries that every government is dealing with right now, COVID, obvious, immigration, climate change, social unrest, corruption, drugs, I could go on. With all of these common problems, is there ever, and you mentioned the big idea by in, in the previous summit, is there any hope for an integrated response to any regional challenges? And if anything, is there any hope for any type of regional integration at all? Look, in terms of, it's funny because, and I put it in the book, I mean, there's a, uh, this notion that trading within Latin America, I mean, trade within Europe, Europe, uh, the, the trade that happens within European countries is about 65 or 62% of total trade. In Asia, it's 50%. In Latin America, it's maybe 18%. That tells you everything. And it's not like people are against it. On the contrary, people are very much for more regional trade. What's stopping it? Well, part is the diversity of, of the product offerings that we have. But and more importantly, it is the connectivity of trade that is not there is the numbers of roads, railroads, uh, bridges, uh, river connections, the border connectivity. You know, sometimes you'll have a truck that takes 20 hours to get from one country to the next, and it will wait another 30 hours to try to just go from one country to the other. So these kinds of, so that's, you know, there's things like what's called uh, the single windows that essentially put all of this in a digital form and, and customs clearances can have happen much faster. But there's no doubt that, that we still have a, a lot of work ahead of us and, and it's not something that, you know, is being stopped, I think, in many times for lack of political will and a much, you know, deeper relationship across business sectors of the different countries. I wanted to ask, you know, we, we talked a little bit before about elections and how people are so angry when they vote. I mean, and, you know, you have these very strange elections in Latin America. You have the back to the future election. You have in Brazil with Lula and Bolsonaro that's going to come in, in October. You have uh, Colombia's election with two wildly populist candidates, but one from the right and one from the left. I mean, what do you think is, is how do we get beyond these angry elections and how do we... You can also tell me what do you think is going to happen in Brazil and Colombia, but most of all, how, how elections are not resolving problems. And so how do we resolve problems? Look, I think what is common to both the Colombian and the Brazilian election is that anger that you reference. And that anger has many origins. I think 
are the traditional challenges that every country has had that were simply accelerated because COVID dismantled a lot of things in, in our own eyes and showed the inequality, the poverty, the, you know, you, you saw how, uh, I, I, I reference in the book how, for instance, COVID spreading Guayaquil when, you know, there were hundreds of students coming back from Europe from studying both in Italy and in Spain. They arrived, they were told not to go out to, you know, to basically quarantine for a couple of days. Well, none of that happened. They went to parties, they went to a, to a wedding and they became a, a, a super spreader. And then all of a sudden you had this huge expansion and people on the streets, as we remember in Guayaquil, who were, you know, bodies all over the place. That lack of solidarity that, that was shown because of that, you know, I think it's a picture of, of the problems that people saw and, you know, add to that mental health, add to that the fact that not many people, 50% of the Latin Americans don't have access to either bandwidth or the capacity to connect digitally like we are. Uh, so you have students who essentially lost two years of schooling and not only that, but their whole resilience and their whole you know, a discipline on studying. So all of these things contribute to a level of anger that was not there before. And that level of anger is encountered by a form of politics that is all about what divides us and polarizes as opposed to what, where you can create common ground. So I think we're going to go through this cycle. People will realize that, you know, what has always been true. I mean, progress is a very slow process. I mean, you don't change a society overnight with the light switch, but there's today people selling that idea and is being bought politically by many. Thank you so much for this very thoughtful conversation, Luis Alberto Moreno. It's been a pleasure to have you on Altamar. Muchas gracias. Thank you very much. So, Thea, Peter, I actually finished this podcast more optimistic than I started. I think that we forget the 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 strides that Latin America has gone through. And we focus so much on the politics that we forget about these amazing startups and the great social programs and the, the work that institutions are doing beyond the politics. I think what's really a mess is the politics. And then of course the, the whole reference to anger is something that happens all over the world. And I think the closer we are to a region, the more self-critical we are. And um, I, that happened to me. And, and I feel like I have a little bit more perspective, but on, on the women issue, I do think that there's a concealed uh, problem there that, that needs to be addressed. Yeah, no, I agree, Munia. I also definitely came out more optimistic and thought it was a great conversation. On the women issue, I mean, I think there's more to it than just, you know, the urbanization, which I think is huge, right? And, and huge strides that, that all of Latin America made. But I mean, uh, North America is the United States are pretty urban. And yet we're going back to, you know, 1972 very soon. So I don't know. Um, but I thought it I think it's pretty impressive, all those, the social advances, advances that Latin America's made. Okay, well, I'm glad you two came out um, optimistic because I did not. And it's not that he did anything. I think it's great to remind us that sort of, you know, after the tequila crisis and all of that, you know, Latin America did manage to come back, you know, and, and had a great moment of expansion. All, all of that's true. But I think times have shifted enormously, not only in Latin America, but all over the world where, where politics is being driven by this divisiveness and anger. 
and this identity politics that he himself talks about is a political way of res resolution that is only possible when you destroy your enemy and the person that is not in your tribe, or at least you don't live with them. And that is something that is really, I mean, just like it's possible that we will see some major divisions in the United States, it is equally possible that we will see that in Brazil or in Argentina or in other countries in which certain regions don't want to live with other regions, certain factions and peoples don't want to live with others. And it's, I think that's, this is a, uh, problem that a lot of the West faces for a long time to come and Latin America is not immune to it. So on that pessimistic note, everybody, we have to say goodbye and you can listen to Altamar wherever you get your podcasts from and don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. You can also sign up for our bi-weekly free newsletter for analysis of global trends and we will see you next time. Thanks for joining us.